Okay, another in my author interview series, and it's not over after this. It's kind of fun. I got two more after this. I just this is how I read academic books these days. People reach out to me, and uh, and then I talk to the author. It's fun. All right. Okay, professional podcaster. This is Unstandardized English, a podcast where we talk about the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized and try to seek justice for them in some way. Today, I have a really interesting episode. I say that about all of them, but honestly, this is some of the most fun things I do here. I'm glad that you listen, and I hope that you continue to support the show. But I'm doing this for fun, and so I only bring on guests that I really want to talk to. So I'm bringing back today Dr. Rebecca Campbell-Maltalvo. She was on the show, I guess it was almost two it was two and a half years ago wow i think yeah season two uh and we're talking we were talking about quant crit back then which i've had another episode about since then um but today we're talking about her new book she wrote a book called the latinization of indigenous students uh, she is from Central Florida. The book takes place in Central Florida. It's about, from what I understand, her doctoral research. And I'm going to dig into it with her. As, as I say on a lot of these book episodes, this is an academic book um, and like priced accordingly, you know, and you know how these things are. But, you know, to me, I don't really want to read anything that doesn't have a person in it. I said that in the episode with Dr. Valerie Friedland a few, a few uh, episodes ago. Got to have a person in it. Academics are taught not to be people in their work, but it is just objectively untrue that you can do something that you aren't a part of. So I found that interesting. I hope you find the episode interesting. Buy her book. Link is in the show notes. Buy my book. Link is in the show notes. Support the show on Patreon. Link is in the show notes. Does anyone read the show notes? I don't know. Enjoy the episode. Thanks, Justin. Um, I've been really well. Uh, you know, I just got uh, the hard copies of the book in the mail yesterday, so that was exciting. So overall, very well, you know, just plugging along the same line of work. So I really appreciate you welcoming me back. Uh, it's always fun to chat with you. I always like the things that you have to say. Yeah, I'm not. I was, I was, I was one minute late because I, I was trying to finish a tweet, but I couldn't word it correctly. So I said, let me not, because I have to finish after this. Let me not let her wait any longer. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it though. Uh, so let's, before I say really what I think, and like broadly speaking, I very much liked it, but, uh, before I say what I think about more specific stuff, uh, because I don't have a hard copy, I can't like hold it up or anything. Um, why don't you tell me what it's about? Or tell them. I know what it's about. Tell them what it's about. Well, I'll hold my hard copy up even though you're not. Oh, I guess. Okay, there it is. So I have my background blurred so you can't really see it. So, you know, I appreciate you saying, you know, kind of looking at the details because I, you know, was very particular about some details. So I'm interested in your thoughts. But overall, it's a school ethnography. Um, It's based on data that I primarily collected during the 2014 to 2015 school year, the setting is central Florida. It's quite rural. Um, you have this district where um, for the past decades, you've um, had a lot of Latinx people coming into the area. Um, and so the book is really about what happens in a school district where um, people working in the district may have some opportunity to better understand their students in terms of like their identities. And so the book is really, you know, painting this picture of how, how does it happen that schools understand students' identities? And then it gives some suggestions for how we can do a better job. And I will just add that, you know, the book starts out with the intro, right? Which all of them do, you know, it paints this problem of why we should be on, you know, trying to understand student identities and, how that um, the idea is that it can help with uh, schools doing a better job. And of course, it backdrops it in like anthropological theories and colonization and things like that. But I 
I'm actually pretty excited about the first chapter, which is a historical chapter, um, and I kind of outline all these groups coming into this area, but it's not just focused on Latinx students, also focuses on African-American students, um, begins with American Indian students, uh, and of course, white students, um, and it's really interesting how the different sources I reviewed, which was like books and newspapers, it's really interesting, I'm going to use the word interesting, how they talked about each group. And it really kind of tells you, um, it kind of belies a little bit about those groups' powers. Then the chapters two and three is really um, some of the main meat of the book. Um, and chapters two and three is on um, how the schools understand students when it comes and serve them when it comes to language. So that's chapter two. And then chapter three is on understanding racial and ethnic identity. And, um, you know, I was talking with my editor and, She's like, hey, you know, there's some stuff in there that um, you can leave in, but it might, is it uh, on the same page as the main points you make in the book? And I listened to what she said. At the end of the day, I kept it in there because, and, and she kind of agreed. She's like, you know, any book about a topic, like if you're talking about Latinx students, those aren't the only things going on in the school. So I was able to keep in some very important um, parts about you know, racial socialization that as it pertains to black and African-American and Haitian students um, that I thought were quite powerful in chapter three. Then chapter four, we have the migrant education program, which is like this federally funded program. And I just kind of um, talk about the resources and the relationships that that program has with students and offers to students. Um, and I feel like it's, it's, can leave on a little bit of a positive note. And then the conclusion, I kind of bring it all back to this original question of how do the schools understand students? Why is it important? And what does that really tell us about, you know, the role of the schools in colonization? And then I try to be, a, you know, have a positive note about here's some things we can try to do to do a better job. That is the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, what I, I'm not going to be able to remember pages or anything like that. Uh, but what I found interesting about it, you know, there's ethnographies out there that are written from a very academic point of view, let's just say. Obviously, this is an academic book, but you get, you know what I'm saying. And my audience, anyone who listens to me knows what I'm saying is that like, I don't know, the classic, like, I went to live with the people. And I found out how exotic they are, right? And that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I guess sort of the basis of anthropology, which I know you're not really doing, but still this, the stereotype of ethnography is seeing that. Um, but this is not some area that's just random for you, right? You know, when you say Central Florida, I think if you're not familiar, people think Central Florida, they just think Disney World. Because that is physically in the center of Florida, right? Or, or Kissimmee and all of that stuff, right? But that's not really what you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's near there. Uh, I mean, this is more like, I guess, the Florida project than that, you know. Um, but again, that's still in the shadow of Disney World. Now, it's a, it's a different group. But the point is, this is not near that. I mean, physically near, but just culturally, everything else is very different, even if it's not hundreds of miles away. So could you really sort of set the scene for what this area is like and just get first maybe just geography ge geographically where it is i know it's central florida people say well where is it it's in the center of florida obviously but <laughs> like you know how how many miles away is from like tampa orlando that sort of thing or, or jacksonville um and then a little bit about what it's like obviously i know from reading the book but i don't think people do know well, I think that's an excellent point to start off on, um, because I think that is one thing that, you know, makes this book unique, because this book could have been written, you know, in California or the Carolinas. Um, I know that there's similar things going on. To my knowledge, there's not been like a full scale book on this topic, but um, there is definitely scholars who I cite heavily, you know, where they're finding some similar things. So the situation in Florida is... Um, you know, Florida is a big state size wise, but there's also like multiple distinct cultural geographic areas. Um, and people have known this, you know, for over a hundred years, people have written about this area of Florida. And 
if you think about it, it's kind of like the panhandle going down to like the right central part of Florida. And um, it's it's definitely geographically, culturally different. And so when people, I talk to people, I, I think that they might hear my Southern accent being from Florida. But when I went to that area, the Southern accent is far more distinct. So um, linguistically, you know, I mean, of course, we know that dialects aren't neat and tidy like that, but certainly um, an observer can hear um, a dialect difference. But um, what I want to say is it's very agricultural there. Um, you can think about, you know, when people think about Florida and oranges, that is accurate. You know, um, blueberries, there's so many um, agricultural draws that are bringing people there. Um, you know, everyone's a lot of people have pickup trucks, cowboy boots, you know, rodeos. Um, it's really a deep south. So when you think of deep south, this is that. And people, a lot of the times you'll see academics say, oh, well, Florida's not the deep south. I understand that, but this is the deep south. When you're talking about the panhandle down to this area, this is the deep south. Culturally, you've got that cracker identity that um, some people really stand behind. Um, and like many other parts in Florida, um, people use the Confederate flag as like de decorative. Um, so that can tell you a little bit about the culture. And then you can also see one person can see that it's quite, um, I would say, residentially segregated. Um, and you can also look at demographics like of school teachers, employees, superintendents, administrators versus the student body who they serve. So there's um, some distinction there. It is getting better since the 10 years that the study was originally conducted, I would say, um, although I haven't looked super closely, but um, it's very religious there. Um, over 50% of people go to church weekly, according to some statistics I found. Um, I, and I think that's one thing that really brings people together from different racial groups, although I would say that the churches are quite racially segregated. But because it's very politically conservative in terms of religion and um, voting trends, um, so the religion is one thing that really bridges people um, together. So there's just a lot of moving dynamics of, you know, like religion, political affiliation, um, other identity markers that it's like people, sometimes they're in the in-group, sometimes they're not. And then there's other people who are more often in the in-group um, in terms of having power. Um, I remember, you know, when you talk to different people from the areas I did for my book, you know, how they describe it is uh, it, it really varies because you'll have some people saying, oh, you know, I think we do a pretty good job, like being fair. And then you'll have other people say, oh, no, it's like definitely a deep south, good old boy network town. So um, I hopefully that kind of paints a cultural picture as to what's going on there. Yeah, I mean. I. um I think because it's not super heavily populated that when places aren't super heavily populated and aren't also tourist areas, I think people just don't even think about it unless they're from there or they go there for some other reason, you know, and this is not, that's just a Florida thing. I mean, that's really like, think about it. You know, if you go to Adirondacks in New York or something, people know about it because people go there to visit, but like nobody really knows anything about what's between Albany and Rochester, you know, aside from the finger lakes themselves, but like, there's places there. That's a distinct culture. People think New York. I remember I went on vacation to Jamaica, and uh, this is November, and there was like a four feet of snow in Buffalo. And this uh, this British guy was like, "Oh, you just came from New York? How's the snow?" I'm like, "It wasn't snowing in, in, in New York." <laughs> so it's just like uh, the states are big. Well, not all of them, obviously, but you know, Florida is physically big and population-wise big. But this is an area that is very distinct culturally, and I think. It's it's hard to keep so many different cultures in a person's head. It's just hard. So it's easy to sort of mush a state into one culture, right? I I even just because I don't I've only been to to I guess Miami and Orlando. Um, think of it as like well, there's Disney World, and there's Miami, and there's then some alligators, and I know that the Panhandle's like that. <laughs> right. And I guess like Jacksonville's over, you know, more towards like Savannah and stuff like that. Uh, because if you don't spend time there, how would you really know unless you read books like this is the point. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to give sort of a, a perspective on a place that I really don't think people know about. 
um, and to give it, a, you know, to bring it to life in a way. Now, it helps, of course, that there's not uh, a random, like I said, not a random place for you, right? I don't, I don't like academic books at all when it just seems like, well, you know, this seems like a place I'd like to just for learn some things about, like a complete outsider, the Ema Ida, you know, divide. We've been talking about it in academia for a while, but we don't really do anything about it. You know, uh, how many, I have a, I don't know if this person's a friend, someone I know who just, she's a French professor, which fine, right? But as part of her being fluent in French, she's done all this research in like West Africa. So she like speaks Wolof, which it's not bad to learn these other languages, but, but I'm just like, why would they, why would they care what you have to say? You are not from West. Like, you're not. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying you can't. I think it's better if we learn about these places. But this sort of insertion, I just feel, feel uncomfortable. Whereas for you, like, with the with the direct connection, like, I don't I don't think that this book would have been. You could do the, 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 the basic surface research if you're from anywhere, right? But I think the fact that you are, it, you're part of this story. Right. This isn't just some place where you write about it and you're like, all right, well, that's some good, that's some good dissertating, you know, and you just move on. Like, cause you know how people are with that. They're like, great. And I feel this way sometimes too, where I'm just like, the best dissertation was a done dissertation and it's done. I care about it cause, uh, but again, I'm in my dissertation too. So like, I just have, I guess tell me how, you know, you feel about that aspect of it, the fact that it's something with a direct connection to you, because I really do think that we need to stop with these academic books that are just like, here's some stuff that happened. <laughs> yeah, I like how you started off, you know, with this idea, like there is so many cultures and it's like it is impossible to memorize. And I mean, culture is a moving target and even what is culture. But um so I think what's neat about the cultural area is um although it's distinct and somewhat small I mean, although it's a number of people spread out over a large area um you know it's like many many counties in Florida I would say are part of this area um but um I think the processes going on are definitely seen in other areas of the US and even other areas of the globe where you're asking, you know, how do schools as or any institutions like understand the people that they serve and and through not understanding them, they try to make demographic representations of them that are inaccurate, although I acknowledge, you know, race and ethnicity and other things are socially constructed, but there is also, you know, a line of thinking that says, well, it is a good idea to be able to like represent the people that you're trying to serve so that you can try to say something about them as a group so that you can better serve them. So I do think, um, you know, this is going on elsewhere. So in terms of like, you know, me being connected to the research site, um, I think that was helpful because, um, you know, I'm originally from Florida. I'm not from what I would say is like the exact same geographic region, um, but it is like two hours away from where I went to public school at. And, um, I personally, you know, I would say my public school education was very positive, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, things weren't going on where there was differences in how people access school resources and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, with my positionality as, you know, a white woman, that I was privy to things that people said in the district that they might not have said to somebody else. Um, and so that's, you know, why we need um, a range of people doing this work that are, you know, connected to these districts and served by them so that they can get these different insider views. So I think that that's one strength of the book that, um, you know, I was able to go through some gates that, um, I, I could share, uh, you know, this is maybe how some decisions are made and people's rationale and let's dig more closely at this rationale and see how, you know, what we can learn about it. And I, I think just to close that out is also, um, you know, when I was concluding this book, um, the governor of Florida had, you know, and the Senate and House, you know, they were floating this legislation. It hadn't yet been signed, but there was other legislation that had been signed that's really 
I would say drastically and profoundly changing the landscape of not only higher education, but K through 12 in terms of um, teachers being able to do their jobs and um, censoring. Um, I would say it's, you know, like nothing Florida has seen before. And so I had to be very careful in my write up about, um, you know, I live in Florida, even though I work at the University of Connecticut, I'm now remote. And so um, I tried to be very careful about doing diligence to the people I am trying to, um, you know, tell a story um, about and with and, you know, in a way that serves them, but also in a way that, um, you know, people would, uh, certain people would be willing to read so that, you know, hopefully it's contributing to opening people's eyes about, okay, how can we do a better job? Like, what are we doing? Well, let's maintain that, but also, uh, let's do a better job. And so I am, like I, like you mentioned, you know, from, from Florida and, um, I myself grew up on, you know, it's an agricultural area. Um, so it wasn't like super, um, culture shock to me. Like I had grown up in a mobile home. Um, so when I did a lot of site visits, um, you know, it wasn't surprising to me, like the range of homes I visited, um, so, yeah, I think the connection to the region um, made it easier on me and then also helped me do a better job. And, you know, I care about uh, this area and um, the things, like I say, going on at the research site, they're going on elsewhere, not only in Florida, but other places. So, Yeah, I think when you talk about the range of voices, doors, or I guess you said gates, but whatever, uh, that are open, um, I think... There's two points I want to make to that. So in terms of the gates, because you had sort of a dual gate that people, because the people that you're writing about, you're writing about both the decision makers and the people the decisions are affecting, right? And I think researchers, scholars, whatever, have to be aware of how their positionality affects both of those things, depending on what they're trying to look at. So like, I think that, for example, were you, a Latin person from there, you could probably have some conversations with the parents and the kids and so forth, right? Uh, but you might not be able to have the conversation with the decision makers, <laughs> right? Or they might give you some pat answer or whatever. On the other hand, if you weren't from there, but you looked like you look, you could probably talk to the decision makers, but you might not be able to talk to the parents and the kids, right? So... I think that the, the sort of general privilege, whiteness and all that, but then the sort of insider privilege, right, of being able to be more trusted. I mean, you can still do a bad job, but but like, you know, you have a foot in the door there, right, is is something that I think, and I'm making more of a meta point, but you know how my podcast is, uh, is really important for scholars to consider. And I don't think it's taught enough in terms of these schools, because I think it's not just what interests us. Because, yes, you do have to do what interests you or else you're not going to do a good job. But also, it's not just who's going to be willing to talk to me. Because, yeah. And it's who's going to be willing to be fully honest with me, which is a related concern. And then there's also like, okay, and then if I write about it, who's going to listen to me? Because you don't want, I mean, at least for the sort of pushing justice work that we're trying to do here, it's not that I'm trying to get a, a Malcolm Gladwell audience, but like I want people, even if it's a small audience, I want them to listen. And I, like when I thought about my own research, I said, you know, I didn't grow up poor, right? Uh, frankly, at this point, especially for black students, you got to come up with a really interesting angle, including the one that you came up with, in order for me to just be like, look how things are for poor kids. Because, frankly, I, I don't think that the people who <laughs> the people who are doing things to them care. And again, unless you come up with an interesting angle. And also, I don't know how trusted I would be because I'm not from that environment, right? I'm now. I probably could have figured it out in New York because I'm from here. But still, but I said, but all the schools I went to with with not just white people, but this particular type of white people, they'll talk to me, and they might actually listen to me. So um, I just try to think, where, what would I be interested in and where can I have the greatest impact? Where can I push those levers? And I think that that is not 
pushed enough in these schools. Um, you get professors who do it. I certainly structure when I adjunct because, like, my main job isn't in this, but I adjunct most summers just really for fun. And, like, the class, I'm just, like, I'm, I tell the students, I'm, like, I'm specifically trying to get you to think differently about this more than I'm just trying to convey the information. If you just want to read the information, you can just read books. Like, you don't need me for that. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I think that more schools should be doing what we're talking about here and tra- like specifically training people because you can't just do this without training is part of the problem. I don't just mean the ethnography itself. Obviously you have to be trained in that, but schools are doing that. Uh, but like really choosing a, a line of inquiry that is both compelling to you and compelling to an audience and, you know, potentially impactful. They, they really only push the form rather than the function. And I think that that's really a disservice. People figure out the function like you did, like I have, you know, and I think the ones that have done the strongest work are people who figured out the function. For better or worse, it's people who figure out a really cynical function and do a good job at it, like, like the grit people, right? Like that's a function. They figured it out, <laughs> but there are going to be people like that. So anyway, that's, that's a long sort of digression about it. So I don't want to give away the ending kind of say but it's not a novel so uh if you could go into just a little bit not the whole thing because they should read the book uh about some of the things you found about the title subject right the latinization of indigenous students could you talk about first of all what that means right in terms of the context language and so forth and also, you know, some of the impacts that had on those students and the other groups of students you mentioned, whether they be black students or white students or what have you. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah. So just to kind of like echo, you know, your initial comments about how people are able to enter sites, um, you know, based on their positions. Um, I think I, you know, one of your earlier points about where I'm from that that was useful. Like, I think that, you know, um, I had, I think I was trusted not only because of, you know, my race, but also I am also from a similar area. So like someone coming from like a metropolitan California or metro, you know, a busy New York city, regardless of their race, there could have been a distrust from some decision maker. So I just wanted to echo kind of that, that, you know, it's like this other layer that I think you had brought forward. And, you know, I feel like I was trying to be really careful about, you know, wanting to get people to listen. And so I had to make some decisions when I was writing, like what words I would capitalize and stuff like that, which is slightly different than some decisions I'd made in the past. And I understand many of the arguments for and against some of those styles um, and like what they mean politically. Um, and so there's multiple reasons to do them. So, you know, anybody that wants to kind of uh, talk about those details, I'm happy to. So, um, yeah. And I also like your point about, you know, I think ultimately what this book is about for me from my own background is, you know, how you understand yourself in the social world and how that's like dependent upon all your positions. And so when you, um, are in positions of power, you know, you, you, it doesn't become visible to you certain things about how the world works. And certainly just because you feel like your eyes are open doesn't mean you understand people's perspectives. But one of the things that I did was, um, you know, because I was there for a year, you know, almost a year, I was in the schools every day. After I would see the same people day in and day out, they really started to share um, candid thoughts with me, in my opinion, and this was people, you know, outside of my racial group and gender group, um, who I think were, you know, just having formed relationships with people. So, um, I also learned Spanish, although it's been several years, so I, I, I haven't used it much. Um, and people knew that my Spanish was not fabulous, but, um, I think because I, they could see I was making an effort. And, um, so I think that there was several things going on that really helped me. I, I do think get some people's honest thoughts, um, but certainly, um, like you say, if I had uh, different identities, you know, what we could say would be different. So in terms of the findings, um, 
Latinization, not a term I, um, you know, coin or anything, and it's been used to mean different things. Um, I outline them in the book. Um, uh, but uh, Patricia Ambacadano Lopez, she um, offers like the term that I think is like most similar to mine or, or my use of it, which is like, it's like, the, and this is kind of how I've settled, um, you know, standing on the shoulders of folks before me, is that it's like this process through how people become Latin or Latinx um, by like changing certain aspects of identity. So I, so it's like a process through which you become Latinx, right? Latinization. And so I, I introduce some terms that I, that I think are new. Um, and it's basically this idea of like identity reformation where you have authoritative others who, um, have the power to like mark down information about you in official records, like demographic information, for example. And so what I, some of the main findings was that um, school employees are tasked with a job to do this work, right? Which is to build demographic portraits of the students. And they do that one at a time as students are registered for school. And so um, what I found is that as families would report, the languages that they spoke in the household, which by law the, the schools must ask, um, I qualitatively observed um, some of the school employees changing the reported languages like Nawa, which is an indigenous um, language. They, they school employee might say, oh, OK, so Spanish. So I'll write Spanish. And so that was kind of the first really obvious reformation I noticed. And. Um, then when I was doing some background work um, to be able to point like a demographic portrait of the community as I was like starting to write up and things like that, um, I knew that there was a lot of what I would say is a lot of indigenous people there because I had got to know people. I knew that they spoke these languages. I just spent a lot of time with them. And so I was appalled when I looked at the state's records and they said some schools were zero percent indigenous or, or American Indian or Native American and I, I just, so there was like this moment, I, I can distinctly bring, bring myself back there where I'm like, what is this? How is this possible? Like, that's just not accurate. Like, what is going on? And so lo and behold, not only were people's languages being reformed, um, but their race and ethnicity were. So what's very important on the first thing I'll say regarding language is, so I had that qualitative observation, right, where the school changed, reported indigenous languages into Spanish. So then I gave um, a, an inventory, like a big language survey to three schools there. And I compared, OK, how many languages are parents reporting that they speak, that the children speak versus, you know, the de-identified school records? Like, what does that say the linguistic portrait is like? What I found is that for every 19 um students who have reported who have a parent who speaks an indigenous language according to the survey so for every 19 children with an indigenous language speaking parent the school only recorded one of those so i was able to like show systematically the degree of which we had that linguistic reformation and then i did something similar with the racial and ethnic data where again looking at the de-identified um, school records um, you could count i mean okay this you know, at the middle school, 100 kids had re had been recorded as being American Indian, which is the category the state uses. So why is the state website saying it's zero? And the answer is, is people's identities were reformed in this reporting because by law, the state of Florida's Department of Education and the federal Department of Education, they have rules about how this demographic data is is reported. And one of those is that if you claim Latinx or Hispanic identity, you are not reported in any racial group. And so what that means is for the what I would say is, you know, significant, like at the middle school alone, it was over 100 kids um, who were indigenous. Like, uh, you know, offhand, I'm thinking it's like 10 percent or so, which is a lot in, in an area. You don't think that you have um, American Indian uh, students. And these are not like seminal students. These are um areas from like uh, Mayan areas, Zapotec. So you have like from Mesoamerica, but you know, the area today, Mexico, things like that. So um, what you're seeing is that the state's rules about how students are 
um, reported is changing the identities on a large scale. And so those things are contributing. So it's like a cycle, right, where there's just so many things going on. You have school employees at the site who they don't think those categories should be used um, for those students anyway. And, you know, I've talked to them. I included their comments in the book so that you have the local understandings of how the categories are defined, even though that's at odds with what the form itself defines on the back of the registration form as to what indigenous means. It means any of the, you know, uh, people affiliated or descendants of the original peoples of the Americas, which is, you know, the United States and Mexico, uh, among other areas. And so um, I have these local understandings of school employees, and then you kind of see, okay, how is that uptaken at the, like, principal level in terms of the decisions they make, and then all the way up to, like, state level. So, like, there's this multi-level um, factors that are shaping how the school sees um, children. And so that's really, like, one of the main points of the book is you see these multi-level processes through which um, authoritative others, so it's people in school and the state, you know, are reshaping reported identities in ways that Latinize, right? They erase indigeneity um, and report people as Latinx. And this is, is connected to, like, ideology in Mexico that's, like, longer standing and purposeful and colonial and sought to um, destabilize power of indigenous groups. So um, I would say that is one of the main findings of the book um was uh the Latinization of language and ethnicity. And then I would say two more important findings were, and I'll be brief, is that um even though we had this going on, there was still a lot of good going on in the districts, especially with the migrant education program. Um these people <laughs> I would say had like real relationships with the people that they served. And it was like an oasis in this district. And then the next finding I would say that deserves to shed light on is, um, although this is a book about Latinization, um, how this district was serving African-American students. And so there's some examples, uh, I think it's in chapter three, where um, I really dive into how we teach about race in, in, cl- in class. Um, and it's not often overt. It's just these side conversations or it, it, it emerges in a text or something. And it's really consequential how people talk about that. And that does impact how students later identify. Um, so I would say that those are the main findings of the book. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah, I found it all not just to be valuable in that sense, but conveyed in a way that was at least more accessible than you would usually see these things packaged up. Because what you're talking about, the first of the things you just mentioned was sort of the statistical erasure or recategorization of people. This happened yesterday, actually, to me, not to me, but I was for work without going into too much detail. Um, I had to submit a conference proposal, not an academic conference, like a business conference, right? And so you have to put in the the identities of the people on the panel because they're trying to make it diverse because it's that's part of the point of the conference. And one of the people who we have in our proposal, well, her mom's Mexican, but she white, <laughs> right? So like you can't. So it's this this whole like it's two different boxes. There's the the first box of ethnicity is like, are you Hispanic or not? That's it. And then the next one is race, and Latin's not a race, according to the categorization. So you just have to be like, well, white. And I don't know what their system does. I'm not on their in their data, so I don't know if they report it as Hispanic white, non-Hispanic white, or whatever the way that the, the country does. But then again, like that's – it's just messy. I understand – what they're saying, but like, I really think it should be, I feel like the, the, the chopping it up backwards to me. I feel like if, if you want to be honest, truly, we just need to be clear that we're talking about phenotype rather than identity, right? And the United States, every place's categorization can be a little bit different, but we're in the United States, so. And I think instead of it being like either Hispanic or not, I think it's really like white or not. <laughs> like, do you seem to be white or not? Right. And people can. And then like in that sense, 
And then everything else should just be, if you're, if you're going to have one binary, it should be that one, right? And that doesn't mean you can't be part white or anything like that, right? It's just like, if people see you, are they going to be like, that's a white lady, right? And they're never going to do that. But I'm just saying, it doesn't, it makes even, it makes more sense than doing it based on something that isn't visual, right? Because you're talking about like bloodline, which is like a whole weird thing to be doing anyway. Uh, and then if you're going to, so I'm saying, if you're going to either don't separate it and just put Latin or something in there or break Latin into several things, because you can be black and Latin, you can be indigenous, right? You know, um, or if you're going to separate it out, it shouldn't be Hispanic or not Hispanic. It should be white or not white, right? They're never going to do that because they they got to be the default. Or you, I guess, have to be the default, right? Uh, and then all this does is make the data muddy. Um, and then you get people where, you know, I was talking to somebody about, you know, should I live here? Should I live there? And I was saying, you know, I'm really concerned about certain areas that are, you know, not very diverse. And I don't want to raise my son in those places. And this woman goes, oh, yeah, I think about that a lot, too. I'm Hispanic. And I'm just like, I know. But I also know if you went to those places, they wouldn't notice that. <laughs> so, like, uh, to this person, I'm not talking about you, right? So, you know, I just feel like, and then, but th these categorizations matter, not just for what you're talking about with school policy and the way people are taught and so forth, but it matters for the way people think of themselves. you got to check something off a bunch of times. You're not going to forget what you checked off. And obviously it's combined with the way people are raising their homes and so forth. But like if the school says you got to do this, the teachers aren't going to go that far out of their way. They're going to try, but they're not going to go that far away from the policy because they have paperwork and they got to get stuff to do. And uh it just becomes, I understand that we have to keep track of these things to some extent, but, and I don't have a magic bullet to fix it. But I do think it's just so inherently, I don't know, messy, although I don't think that it shouldn't be messy because it, identities are messy. I think the problem is we're trying to make identities clear, cut, and they're not. Uh, and people will say, well, then how do you? I'm like, I don't know, but we need to try because what we're doing isn't working. That's what I think, really. And I was saying, it's either, it's either let it be messy, and if it's, and if, and if, and if it's not going to be messy and it's going to be unnaturally clear cut, then, then make white the thing we focus on. <laughs> yeah, I agree that it is, you know, we are trying to measure something that's immeasurable. Um, so I definitely share your, uh, I don't know, frustration or, you know, like, um, my suggestions, like what are my suggestions, you know, like, uh, you know, and I hear a lot of big anthropologists, you know, so they're able to, like, say these critiques, you know, so much more sophisticated than I am. But, you know, about like, you know, it's just perpetuating colonialism to even want to measure. And, and I definitely get all those things and don't disagree with them. But at the same time, at the end of the day, the story that emerged in the book with systematic erasure of indigeneity that emerged through a lens where we were trying to look really closely at you know how demographic characteristics are recorded or you know how we construct them so um i i definitely see where you're coming from in terms of like you know the decisions that are made about well which groups and how does reporting go and you know the separation of certain groups and things like that so I definitely agree that, um, you know, and I, I appreciated you, you know, the word money, it was used by someone in the book, uh, to talk about, you know, these identities. And I, I agree, they are money. And they, as you kind of alluded to, you know, they change depending on where you go and, you know, an individual's own identities change over, you know, can change over a lifetime. But that doesn't change the fact that, um, how one is perceived in the world is consequential to how they're treated. And like, like chances and things like that. So I think for me, um, I definitely acknowledge all of those critiques, yet I still wrote a book on how we could do a better job because 
I think that the message I'm trying to get at is let us just do our best to understand the people we serve, you know, in education and take them at their word for their identities. Um, and if you allow people to re- report all the identities that they, you know, are important or, or feel important, then you can later on do those counts, you know, and you can um, not manipulate, but you can say, well, I am interested in the number of people who are X or have these two identities or this or that. So um, I think that, you know, you said it so well that, you know, we're trying to um, capture something that's really difficult to capture. And so I think that's where the book, the book sits in that conversation of yes. And it's still important to try to do a good job at it because it, it has consequences. Yeah. At the, Tend towards the end here, but it goes to a lot of my points as, as they always do back to like, people will say, and I, read, I wrote this in my own book about like, well, there's no, we should, we shouldn't say that there are any standards in language. I'm like, that would be nice, but they did that. So we can't pretend they didn't do that. And I don't mean to enforce them on people. I mean, we need to acknowledge that standardization has occurred. Right. It's the same thing when I get and it's always white people who do this to me, but they're like, well, you know, race is a construct and therefore we shouldn't think about it. I'm like, it's easy for you to say that you don't really have to deal with it. (laughs) So like and then and then, you know, if we were to try to say, okay, let's not even keep track of these things. Right. Forget about correcting social ills. I just mean people's identities. Yeah, but for with the colonialism stuff, like the the people who've suffered under it, we have built entire identities and, and solidarities over that. Well, of course, unfortunately, we're not as solid that, you know, don't have the solidarities we should. But like, were we going to pretend that what kept us together in a lot of ways in the last four or five, six hundred years just went away and we just like all live? It reminds me of when, you know, 10, 15 years ago, some well-meaning people were saying things like, well, you know, maybe if we get rid of the idea of marriage, it will make everything fair for same-sex couples. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really, people still want to get married. Like, like that's not going to work, you know? And it's also, that would be like a, you know, a lose-lose for everybody, I think, right? I, at this point, we can't pretend that what has occurred to this point has not occurred. So how do we go forward from here? And I think that your book is sort of come around the bend here is, is one way in terms of not just what the findings are, but because you don't know what the findings are until you go and do the research. But in terms of aims that academics and scholars should have about ways forward, right? Because to me, and I say this, I said it 20 minutes ago about pulling levers is like, I think I want people who are young is the wrong word, but emerging scholars to think about what levers, not just do they want to pull, but would they be able to pull more effectively? Right. And everyone, even if you are the most cishet man, white man, able, everything, there is a lever that you can pull. Uh, and I think that's what doctoral studies and so forth should be about is finding your levers. So anyway, Rebecca, uh, I thank you for coming on here to, to give people a taste of the book. The link will be in the show notes. I don't know how many people read the show notes, but I'll put it in the thing when the episode comes out. Uh, and if you want to tell people who listen, you know, where to get it, because this isn't coming out for a few weeks anyway. Um, so if you want to tell people, you know, press and all that sort of thing, you know, th- this would be the moment. Well, thanks. Yeah. And just to wrap up, I, I definitely agree with, um, you know, there's people on one side who I feel like are, we need to change it all. And I think they make a lot of good points, but I find myself as to like, how can we get there? And at the same time, what about like people's quality of life through the struggle and like being realistic and, and things like that. So um I kind of have some footnotes in there about, you know, I'm trying to be realistic, but I also acknowledge where we're trying to move is bigger. So, um, so actually the book did just come out four days ago on the 15th. So very exciting. Um, 
And actually, if people can get it anywhere, like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, if they get it from the publisher's website, so it's Lexington, which is like Roman Littlefield subsidiary. If they get it from um, the website, you can get 30% off with the code LXF and F30. So that's um, L like little, X like Xavier, A and D. Um, actually, let me just say it again. LXF, like Frank, and then A-N-D, another F-30. So LXFNF-30. They can get 30% off. And it is in hardback and also ebook. They might do a um, paperback run depending on how well it does. And if anybody wants to use it in their class, I'm super happy to zoom in, do a Q&A. Um, I'm plan- I am planning to tour um, this upcoming, you know, 20, 2023 to 2024. So if any universities, um, classes want me to come out and talk about it, happy to do so. Maybe we can line it up when I'll be in some people's areas. And, um, just thank you, uh, Justin. It's always like super fun to talk to you, even though I've only had the pleasure of doing once before, but, um, I have so far really appreciated, um, your insight and the comments that you've shared. And I just really thank you for having me on and it was nice to chat with you. Yeah, it was nice to chat with you too. I um you know, when I started this podcast I was a student, right? And so I didn't really know where I was gonna go. Um I ended up using the podcast in the dissertation, not the episodes, but like I, I, what I used to do when I was still a student. I don't do this anymore because I, I don't care. But uh <laughs> I used to take notes after every episode. I was like, hmm, here's what I did. Now I'm just having fun. But it ended up being a really useful way for me to learn a lot because like you and you plural became sort of a proving ground for my ideas. You know, if I said something, I w- if I got pushback in the podcast episode, I said, huh, I got to rethink that. I didn't get a lot of pushback, not because people are so polite or whatever, just because I guess I was making points people agreed with, but it was either like, I need to change that or it's like, no, that's, that's good. So, you know, especially people, cause, because I was a student, almost everybody was farther along than I was. Now there are people who were students and I'm like, old man but uh so it's just really good to have these conversations with people who, who sort of know what they're talking about um and now i can sort of be you know out here in the doctor world and you know see all of you as peers and everything so anyway wonderful to talk to you um obviously for listeners this episode has come out a few weeks after it was recorded so this was recorded on may 19th uh by the time you hear this the book will have been out for a few weeks uh like i said the links for the book will be in the show notes and uh hope everybody has a wonderful whatever time of day it is, wherever you all are. Thanks. Bye.